a very challenging phrase to kick off this evening tonight where we set our hearts to what God was up to as we prepare for Easter. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. There's grace so heavy in that phrase. And a grace that truly is undeserved, don't you think? They don't know what they're doing. What does grace look like for you? What does forgiveness look like in your life? My wife Michelle and I have three boys, twins that are 12 and 8 and another 12-year-old. And the oldest and the youngest, (laughs) don't think too hard on that, are the exact same kid four years apart and they often are, are at odds with one another. And we are diffusing situations all the time. And this is how it often looks in our house. Maybe you can relate. You need to say you're sorry. And so invariably one of those two will go up to the other and say, sorry. And then we have the other one say, it's okay. And the response is always, it's okay. (laughs) Is that really grace? I feel like we're doing our parental duty there. But yet at the same time, if you peel it back a bit... I think that's how we often experience grace and forgiveness in our lifetimes. There's a myth about forgiveness that it has to be felt by both parties. It has to be sincere. But what happens in those moments when forgiveness is messy? Where someone has wronged us either intentionally or unintentionally and has no plan to ask for grace. What do we do with that? I bet if we're honest right now, many of us in here are holding on to some of those things in our lives. People have hurt us, honestly, very deeply. And we're waiting for that person to recognize the pain they've inflicted and come to us in honest and in earnest to ask us for the forgiveness that they maybe don't deserve. What happens to our hearts? when we hold on to those things and when we're waiting for that person to recognize they've done something wrong to us. Eventually our heart gets a little hard. And in fact, the very thing that we're waiting for begins to hold us captive and not able to experience the freedom that God truly has for us when he talks about a grace that's undeserved. Because that's exactly what Jesus extended from the cross in this first moment. He looked out at a group of people, the soldiers that were there, were truly following orders. They were carried out by someone who really didn't want to convict. And so they took this man, Jesus, to the cross and they nailed him there because that's what soldiers do. They follow orders. Consider the Pharisees, the ones who had put Jesus up for trial. They really thought that they were putting down an uprising so that the status quo would not be challenged anymore by this so-called king. They truly thought they were preserving their way of life, but instead they were condemning an innocent man to death. And then think about the people that were there on that Palm Sunday lauding Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, throwing down their palm fronds, singing Hosanna. And then not not even a few short days later, yelling for his crucifixion. Those are the people that were present, or not present, if you will, at the time that our Savior died. And the first words that he speaks are, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus in that moment is challenging our very nature and understanding of grace. 
Is it truly a formulary where this person has to say, I'm sorry, so that we can then extend the grace? Or is it more about a heart condition that we have that holds us captive to those things and keeps us from fully understanding and experiencing the love that God has? Because when Jesus uttered those words in that moment, he wasn't uttering them in the confines of time. This was a timeless phrase that extends to us as well. Because this same grace that Jesus displayed on the cross that we are digging a little deeper into tonight is that same grace that is extended to each and every single one of us. A grace that if we're honest with ourselves, we too don't deserve. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted, you were condemned. I'm alive and well. Spirit is within me because you died and rose again. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my King, would die for me? Amazing love, I know it's true. It's my joy to honor you. Oh, amazing love, how can it be that you, my King, would die for me? Amazing love, I know it's true. It's my joy to honor you. In all I do, I honor you. Oh, in all I do, I honor you. In all I do, I honor you. Our second word for tonight is from Luke 23. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested. Don't you fear God even when you've been condemned, sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Today. Jesus says today. Today is darkness. Today is death incarnate. Today is death in the flesh. Today's sky is bruised and bleak. Today's hill stands, a barren, bleached skull, 
dried in the desert sun. The road that leads to the cross is lined with loose and jagged stones that give way to his stepping feet, but they don't give way to his falling body. The road that leads to the cross is lined with his blood. It leads to failure. You're a failure. The cross isn't a method of torture as much as it is a mode of communication. The cross speaks. You fail. You lose. You are a failure. Why go to such drastic measures just to kill a gentle man? There are much more easy, efficient ways to kill people. No, killing this man isn't the point of the cross. Killing this man is incidental to the bigger point. The point of the cross is to kill hope. To kill hope itself. And hope dies today. Today is the death of hope. As you see him, as you look at that man, look at that man and see where hope leads you. The cross kills hope. Today is hopelessness. Where are all the crowds now? Where are the palm branches now? Where are the hosannas now? Where are the disciples now? They're nowhere to be found. The disciples are halfway back to their fishing boats by now. And here's this man. This man in which we put all of our hope. And now, the weaker and weaker that it gets, the more apparent and obvious it gets to us that our hope was misplaced. It was foolish from the very beginning. It was foolish. And yet, in this place, in this dark place, God is doing something bigger. Something that doesn't make any sense to us. On this day, when hopelessness is the only thing that makes sense, God does something that doesn't make sense to us. Hope lives on in a man. A man that's condemned next to, the, next to that Christ. A man who's dying for his sins. In faith, dim but glowing, an ember that lights this man heart, man's heart. He has hope. This guilty man, he's helpless. His pitiful plea goes unheard by most and laughed at by the rest. He says, Jesus, remember me. Remember me when? Remember me when what? When you're rich and famous? When you make it big? This is nonsense. This is, what, this is the Messiah that's sitting next to you, that's hanging next to you on a cross. And it's condemned next to you. He has the same fate as you. And yet, he sees something in Jesus that not one other person in the world sees on that day. This criminal. The most unlikely person to find hope. The most unlikely person to have faith. The person farthest from hope in the whole world sees in Christ something. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He sees a king and a kingdom. How unfathomable is that? How unlikely is that? It's not just unlikely. It's amazing. It's miraculous. He sees in Jesus Christ a king. But even more amazing than that is Jesus' response. 
Jesus tells him, surely, be assured, be comforted in this time. You will be with me today. Today, this day that is darkness, this day that is death incarnate, you will be with me today in paradise. This day, when all indication led us to believe that hope died, hope lived on in this man. It lives on in the words of Jesus Christ. It lives on for you today. Today, hope lives on for you. Hope didn't die. It's in that assurance. It's in the grace that Christ gave that man. And it's in the grace that he gives to you. Our service will continue with the offering.
The third word comes from John chapter 19. Standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, Here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. I'll never forget the day that that phone call came. It was Christmas Day evening a few years ago. I was in the living room with my dad and my sister watching a movie. We were enjoying ourselves. My mom was in the kitchen and the phone rang. She answered it. And then her voice changed. She got quiet and I could tell that she was crying. So I walked into the kitchen, put my hand on her shoulder and waited. She picked up a pencil eventually and wrote three words on the piece of paper in front of her. Said, we lost Nick. I didn't want to understand what that meant, and very slowly, even though I didn't want it to, what that meant started to sink in. Nick was one of the favorite of all 20 of us cousins. You always knew when Nick was in the room, his laughter was, it would carry for what seemed like miles. His energy was contagious. He always had people laughing. Sometimes he was really annoying, but that's okay. Uh, and we all loved Nick. He lived with my family for a while growing up, and we were really close. He had died really suddenly on Christmas Eve in a car accident on his way home from hanging out with a friend. I grieve the loss of Nick, but the thing that stands out to me about that phone call and about that night that we found out is that my uncle had waited a full day to start calling family members because he didn't want to ruin Christmas. And my grief is for him in that day that he just sat in that unimaginable pain of losing a child, and he was in that alone. In this scene from one of the last moments of Jesus' life, there's a small crowd there, Jesus, this disciple whom he loves, and these women, including his mother. The rest of the disciples are not in the picture. They have fled, presumably out of uh, fear for their safety. This disciple is presumably so young that he was not considered a threat by the government, so it was okay for him to be there. And the same goes for these women that were there. Where were the rest of Jesus' family, Mary's other children? The rest of her family is, is obviously just missing and not present. So when Jesus looks to his mother and he says, Mother, dear woman, here is your son, he's not only establishing care for her because she's now losing her oldest son, Jesus is clearly not able to care for her any longer, so oldest son is not going to be there for her. Her husband, Joseph, is presumably dead at this point, and the rest of her family are not around. So Jesus is not only caring for her physical needs by providing her with a home and with a family, someone to go home to, he's also giving her a son who loves Jesus and whom Jesus loved. So they are able to be family over this mutual common bond of this love for Jesus, but also this love for the way that Jesus had taught them to live. So Jesus is establishing care for Mary. He's also establishing care for this young disciple who, where are the rest of these adult men disciples that he's spent all of his time with? They're not there. So he 
gets to be at home with Mary and they get to share with one another. So in Jesus' last hours of his life, as he is in unimaginable pain, anguishing pain, his thought is for others, establishing relationship, establishing care. But why did Jesus wait until this moment? Why didn't Jesus pull Mary and this disciple aside in the days before, make these arrangements? Why did Jesus wait until this moment on his deathbed to, to have this conversation? I think it's because it shows us a glimpse into the heart of God. That even while God is in the midst of incredible excruciating pain, that God's heart and thought are for others and is with others, but also that God knows that we need each other and that Good Friday isn't about something that is happy or that is exciting or that feels good, but it's Good Friday because of the goodness of this love that is extended and also because Jesus is leaving these two and the rest of us in the care and in the keeping of one another so that we don't have to be in our darkest moments or in our everyday moments alone. We don't have to be alone because of what Jesus has done. The fourth word comes from the Gospel of Mark, the 15th chapter. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. Then at three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? There's this psalm that every Jewish boy and girl learns growing up. It's a psalm reserved for when times are particularly tough, when life seems to become, when it comes after you when it's one thing after another and there's no end in sight, when you're up against the wall and you've run out of options. It's a psalm of anguish, really, a psalm that desperately wonders where God has gone. It's a psalm that wonders when God is finally going to do something, when God is finally going to make things right. And here on a hill outside Jerusalem, there's this young rabbi hanging on a piece of wood, a favorite instrument of Roman torture reserved for dangerous criminals and enemies of the state. And as the day grows dark, unnaturally dark at that, he lifts his eyes towards heaven and cries out, this well-known psalm, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from saving me? My God, I cry out by day, and you do not answer. It seems as if everything has gone wrong. All the miracles, the crowds, all gone. Even his closest friends, one has betrayed one has disowned, and the rest have run away like a pack of cowards. And there he hangs, this young rabbi, all alone, except for a few of the women and one young disciple. And it looks indeed like his God has abandoned him. 
that his God is, in fact, far away, and that his God is not going to be doing anything, at least not anytime soon. But it turns out, it turns out that God has actually been very active, but in a very odd and strange way. Because strangely enough, the one hanging on the cross turns out to be this God, active, making things right, but in a way that no one could have ever imagined. It turns out that this God, the one hanging on the cross, is there taking on all the evil of the world, all the tragedies, all the oppression, all the persecution, the evil that's been done to us and the evil that we've done, our sin. This rabbi, this God, this Jesus on the cross has taken on all the evil of the world, past, present, and future. And with his death, he has taken it to the grave and left it where it belongs. So that evil and all the suffering and all the death that it produces will never, never have the last word again. And it is this God, Jesus, who willingly experienced the ultimate abandonment. It is this God who willingly paid the ultimate price for our freedom freedom from our own self-destruction, and freedom from an eternity without Him. And it is this God who is still inviting anyone and everyone to follow Him, no matter who you are, what you've done, or where you've been. Because it turns out that this God would rather die than be without us. From John 19, 28 through 29. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished, and to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. 
a jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. Jesus said, I thirst. And the pick-me-up that was offered to him could not have quenched any thirst. It was sour wine, a common soldier's cheap wine, vinegar and water, put on a medicinal, a minty medicinal plant called hyssop. It wouldn't work. Speaking of this gruesome and torturous death, Jesus said before, for this I was born, and for this I came. And in that moment, Jesus was defeating the fear and the anguish and the sorrow and the heart-crunching misery that you and I can feel and think there's no one anywhere who could possibly understand the deepest darkness of some of the times that we have to endure. We can say that not at all anymore because Jesus understands. Jesus was always teaching, you know. And that little phrase, because the scripture was to be fulfilled, teaches me something about what Jesus was doing for us on the cross. In addition to suffering with pain, Jesus was teaching us how to endure. We have spoken of Jesus saying, I am the way. And in this way, Jesus taught us how to deal with such darkness in our lives, with a compassion and grace an unbelievable love. There's, there's a psalm that references what Jesus spoke that dark day, and I would like to share that with you. As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I go and stand before him? Day and night I have only tears for food, while my enemies continually taunt me, saying, Where is this God of yours? My heart is breaking as I remember how it used to be. I walked among the company of worshipers, leading a great company in praise to God, singing songs amid the sound of a great celebration. Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will praise him again. I will put my hope in God, for he is my rock and my salvation.
Sixth word from the cross, from John chapter 19, starting in the 30th verse. When Jesus had tasted the sour wine, he said, It is finished. As Jesus hung on the cross, he screamed in agony. And of course he was screaming because there, were, there was all sorts of pain that was going on in his body between being flogged and the nails and the thorns. There was all sorts of things going on. But in this moment, he let out, it is finished. But what, what does that mean? Like what, what was finished on the cross? What really happened here? Because if we were there, if, if you were there and you were one of the Roman soldiers, you would have been one of the ones that just finished crucifying him and torturing him. And if you heard Jesus say, it is finished, you would have thought, well, of course, what he means is that his revolution is finished. You see, Jesus, he was trying to start this revolution called the kingdom of God, but we're Rome. And Rome's a big deal. And even though that Jesus, you know, his revolution was all about loving your neighbor and, and, and all sorts of really nice things, it was still a threat to the establishment. And this cross shows that Caesar's still king and not Jesus. So his revolution is over. But the thing is, that's not at all what Jesus was talking about. If you were one of the Pharisees or the religious leaders that were present in that moment, you would have heard what he said and thought, well, finally he's fessing up. 
Finally, Jesus is saying what we've known all along. He said he was the son of God. He said he was the Messiah, but we know that he's not because look, Messiahs don't die like this. And hasn't he read the scriptures? Doesn't he know that it says in the scriptures that cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree and here is Jesus, the would-be Messiah, hung on a Roman tree and he looks very, very cursed. He could save others. Can't he save himself? And so the Pharisees and religious leaders, they were excited and, and they, he was fessing up that his ministry would be finished and his following would be finished. But the thing is, that's not at all what Jesus was talking about. As Jesus was hanging in agony, he could look down and see his mother, the disciple whom he loved, and some women that were also his disciples that followed him. And you have to think from Mary's perspective, when Mary heard her baby scream, it is finished. Of course, she had to be thinking that he was talking about his life, which was very true. It was literally moments until Jesus would die. And they had to be thinking, he only got 33 years. And all the disciples that had run away, they had to be thinking, we, we'd put our hope in this man. We had put our all in, our, in this man. All of our eggs were in this basket. What are we going to do now? He was supposed to lead us. He was supposed to be the Messiah. He was supposed to save us. And now he's about to die. It's finished. In that moment, it looked like Rome had won, that religion had won, that sin had won, that evil had won. And now the enemy that none of us can defeat and that always comes to every one of us, death, was about to claim a victory over Jesus' body. But it's not what Jesus was talking about. In that moment, when it looked like that Jesus was the one to be humiliated. In that moment, when it looked like Jesus was the one to be put to shame. In that moment, when it looked like that the, the revolution was off. When it looked like that all of the things that he said were just going to evaporate into history. In that moment, when it looked like that it was the very bitter end, something else was happening. Because it was in that death on the cross. It was in that death. That death became a catalyst for this movement that spread all across the world and is still spreading like wildfire today. It was that death that put his words into the words of scripture and into the words of history forever. It was that death. It, it, it was amazing because in that death, before Jesus was put onto the cross and nailed to some pieces of wood, he took the sin of the world, your sin, my sin, he took the sin of the world in, in one hand, and he took sickness and evil and the devil in the other, and he put death, of course, beneath his feet. And as they put him on the cross to crucify him and drove nails through his hands and nails through his feet, those nails went right through sin, sickness, and death. And Jesus held them there until they died. The Father in heaven sent Jesus Christ into this world with a mission to accomplish. To put death to death with his death. When Jesus cried out, from that hill, it is finished. It wasn't a cry of defeat. It was a cry knowing 
that your enemies and my enemies were finished. Luke, the 23rd chapter. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. The time is running out. The end is near. Jesus has been bleeding since early morning. And the time has come. Oh, he, like that prodigal son that he had talked about once, he had uh, spent himself recklessly. He had spent all of it, his divine riches of wisdom and power and substance, he'd poured it all out. Thirty-three years before, he had left the Father's home and come to this country, this world, and now he's going to go back to his father's house. He has spent us all. Death approaches, but it will come on Jesus' terms. He said, no one takes my life from me, he said. I will lay it down of my own accord. It was no whisper that he said those words. He cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed the last. That was Psalm 31, part of it. Mary and Joseph had taught him as a child for that to be an evening prayer when one went to bed. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Could there be a better prayer for you and me as we just about go to sleep? Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Or at the end of our days that we might say, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Bishop Sheen wrote a book, The Life of Christ. He said, never has there been a preacher like the dying Christ. Never has there been a congregation like the one gathered around the cross. And never has there been a sermon like these seven last words. Athanasius lived 300 years after Christ. He was a great defender of the Christian faith, a very wise man. One of his disciples asked him, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? All sorts of deep answers he had to give. But he chose this one. He says it's only on the cross that a man dies with his arms wide open.
But this I know 